You're listening to The Ascent Archive, a podcast of oral histories with rock climbers collected by the University of Utah and produced by the J. Willard Marriott Library. I'm Tali Kasuchi, librarian, rock climber, and oral historian. And I'm Rachel Whitman, and I'm also a librarian. For decades, memory workers, including historians, librarians, and archivists, have conducted oral histories to document life experiences of notable groups of people. These oral history transcripts, and sometimes their accompanying audio and video, are kept in the archives of libraries and museums around the world with varying degrees of access. This podcast, focusing on interviews with rock climbers, is an innovative approach to make oral histories more accessible and easier to listen to on the go or at faster speeds. The Ascent Archive podcast features oral histories that I conducted for the Rock Climbers Oral History Project and others from the American West Center's Ever Al-Kuli Oral History Project. To find out more about these collections, visit the Ascent Archive website, which is included in the show description. You're about to hear an oral history that is unedited. Please excuse possible interruptions, sound quality issues, potentially outdated or offensive terminology, and the occasional curse word. In this episode, we'll hear from Jeff Lowe. Jeff was interviewed by a group of historians in 2009. Jeff was an accomplished mountaineer, developed climbing equipment, authored many books, and organized climbing events and festivals such as the Snowbird, World Cup competitions, and ice climbing in the Winter X Games. Hope you enjoy. This is John Worsencroft, and I'm sitting down once again with uh, Jeff Lowe. And it is uh, March uh, 11th, and it's about 10.45 in the morning. Uh, Jeff, when we left off, we were talking about uh, your cousin George and kind of his uh, mentorship of, uh, of your early climbing. Why don't we just continue from there if you want? Okay, well, just to summarize a little bit, uh, Greg was my earliest uh, partner in climb, crime, whatever, <laughs> and uh, and uh, he became a mentor also to the extent that he was showing me uh, uh, a brand of free climbing that was uh, for the day uh, very advanced and um, and actually. Uh, something that w- would be advanced even in today's gymnastic world of free climbing. Uh, and then shortly after uh, that, probably when I was 15, I think I started climbing with George. Mm-hmm. And I was climbing with George uh, down in Salt Lake City on the granite of Little Cottonwood Canyon and and uh, Bell's, uh, Bell's Canyon and Lone Peak Cirque. Mm-hmm. And there's quite a difference in the rock between uh, Salt Lake and Ogden, although there's uh, quartzite in Big Cottonwood Canyon that's more similar <coughs> to the quartzite in Ogden. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the climbing I did down there was on the granite. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> whereas uh, Greg was 
putting up climbs in on the quartzite in Ogden that were actually world-class standard of difficulty in free climbing back then. George was kind of setting the standards in Little Cottonwood Canyon mm. and on the um, granite down in that area. Uh, although George's climb for state-of-the-art for the day, mm -hmm. climbs like the Finn and, uh, and so on, <clears throat> they weren't as hard as Greg's climbs. Right. There were several grades below that, uh, <laughs> but we didn't know that at the time because nobody could repeat Greg's climbs, right. and George didn't, didn't try them, mm -hmm. and not too many people actually tried them. People didn't come up from Salt Lake much to climb in Ogden, so Greg's climb stayed as a sort of a little backwater, little-known mm -hmm. treasure of historical difficulty. But when I moved to uh, uh, <coughs> my interest down to the granite in Salt Lake, and George became kind of my main mentor, uh, he was, George was, uh, probably six or seven years older than me. Mm -hmm. And he had come back from California where he'd gone to school. And uh, I think we went through this where he was uh, now at the U of U. And, uh, and um, he had brought back uh, granite climbing techniques from, um, you remember what he was studying? I can't remember. I think he was studying uh, physics, but he might have also been studying electrical engineering at the same time. Ultimately, he ended up working for <coughs> a company uh, that uh, had uh, top secret, secret government contracts and I think he was uh, working as an electrical engineer. Okay. I'm not sure. I think he'd have to kill me if he told me what it was. <laughs> so, well, so, then we won't talk about it anymore. No, this is on the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he did. He he kept his. George was always good for his word. Yeah. He would not go against uh, a directive like that. Um, but. Um, At any rate, down in Little Cottonwood, George taught me how to um, really <laughs> slab climb, mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, on slopes up to, oh, <laughs> say 80 degrees, but <laughs> usually 50 to 70 degrees rock slopes where you can climb on almost nothing because you're uh, standing over your feet uh, in gravity and using the friction of your uh, rubber soles to keep you on the rock 
and you don't need much for the hands. And it's a, a delicate type of climbing that, re that requir requires a confidence and a sort of a boldness that's uh, specific to that kind of climbing. And when you're doing new routes, um, you, uh, well, back then we generally would <laughs> climb from one solid hold to another mm -hmm. uh, before stopping <laughs> to place a bolt because there weren't cracks to use natural gear on. <laughs> and George really demonstrated to me how you do that. And it takes a great deal of um, uh, confidence and self-possession to launch off into the unknown, mm -hmm. headed for a what's called a chicken head. Uh, it's a darker intrusion of rock, harder rock in the matrix of uh, <coughs> granite that weathers less and leaves a, a knob in the middle of this granite slab. And you hope that it's a good uh, ledge on top to stand on mm -hmm. for drilling a bolt. And the problem was quite often you would get out to one of those knobs and it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't much of, of a ledge to drill from. <clears throat> so, um, you get out there and, and you <laughs> have to <laughs> you'd have to decide whether you wanted to try and drill from that slippery stance or maybe launch off another 10 feet to the next one mm -hmm. that might be just as bad. So it was <laughs> It's a very mental game and demanding game that I really enjoyed playing. What kind of uh, gear were you using to drill at this time? Well, it, we we were drilling quarter inch, um, usually one inch or one and a half inch by quarter inch uh, um, <laughs> split shank bolts, which... <laughs> which today would be considered absolutely inadequate right. for protection. Um, we used to think they were great. If placed well in good granite, they would hold up to about 1,500 pounds. Mm -hmm. um, but often it would fail at less than that. <laughs> and so for long-term use, they were the wrong thing but they were relatively fast to drill. Mm -hmm. But even drilling one of those by hand would take 10 or 15 minutes. And often uh, the leader would get in trouble drilling it and not drill it deep enough. <laughs> so he'd place a bolt that was still sticking out a quarter inch <laughs> and the hanger rattling around and stuff. 
So the type of protection you got was often not not very reliable. It was more peace of mind then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was it was questionable. Uh-huh. But that was the game and it was a it was a good one. Uh in in today's popular climbing world or populous climbing world, it's not really um justifiable or, or defensible because it's not adequate for uh, for uh, people who come after you know mm-hmm. you really it would be justifiable to maybe do that take that approach on the first ascent and then the same party go back and replace each of the bolts with a uh, two and a half inch by three eighths inch uh, mm-hmm. stainless steel bolt with a good hanger on it. You yeah, know, that uh, that would make sense. Uh, so then you could still take that same kind of uh, exciting approach to doing new routes. Um, But anyway, the first climb of that sort that I did was with George on uh, the thumb in a little cottonwood canyon, a route called S-Crack Direct or Mm S-Direct. And there were two uh, good slab pitches. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, so nice to Good meet you. <laughs> oh, this will help. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the, there were two very good pitches on that climb. The first one was mine, and the training that I had for this uh, this pitch was to follow George on the um, on the fin. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about that last time. Yeah. Um, but then I my next go round was to go up on a new route with George, and I get the first pitch of the first uh, pitch of uh, unbolted slab to lead. Mm-hmm. on my own but back then I George had told me how to do it so that was good enough <laughs> I was trained ready to go uh, and went out there <laughs> and really enjoyed the process of going from chicken to chicken head that I just described mm-hmm. and I guess that pitch is now 5.9 plus or something and and then George led a second pitch of somewhat similar difficulty, and um, and that was um, my first experience of that sort of uh, climbing. And um, today, that route is considered a classic of the canyon. Mm-hmm.
But we were always wanting to um, add more to the roots. So once we had established that, I don't remember who I went back with first to repeat the entire S-crack plus the S-direct, mm -hmm. then finish out <laughs> by a little overhanging crack at the top and then finish out the robin's crack at the top of the thumb, which was the first 510 um, root in, um, in a little cottonwood. Right. So we were always trying to add difficulty and length to everything if we could. Right. Were and, you guys writing this stuff down at the time? I mean, were we recording this or? I, mean, I think uh, uh, about that time, George and some other friends opened up a climbing store mm -hmm. on Highland Drive. And uh, what was the name of it? Um, yeah, I don't remember the name. We'll have to get it. But it was an important shop mm -hmm. because there was a book there that these, you know, we would jot down notes. And I think they were pretty much kept there mm -hmm. at the shop. So kind of a prototypical guidebook. Yeah, it would be a loose leaf notebook, you know, um, and that you'd do a new route and stop by the shop and, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> do a simple, rough sketch of the route. Would customers uh, use it before they went and, and tried to do those? Oh, yeah. That's where we'd go to get the beta on the although we didn't have terms like beta <laughs> back then. Um, and so that was my introduction to um, Little Cottonwood. George also introduced me to uh, um, <coughs> the <laughs> bell towers <coughs> and we did some climbing there um, um, and since George was the arbiter of the difficulties we were dealing with, mm -hmm. um, he would basically establish the, um, grade for the climb, you know, and I go, oh, that's, that's <laughs> the difficulty. Yeah. And in later years, turns out they were often undergraded because uh, that's what George did. Uh -huh. And um, for instance, we did a, when I was 15, George and I did a uh, <coughs> climb on middle bell tower that we called, I think, the easy way up. Mm -hmm. um, and there's not much easy about it. But the first pitch, which most people don't do, is uh, um, actually, uh, we called it 5-8. I led it. George followed it and said, well, I think that's about 5-8 crack. <laughs> that he, he used to have a kind of a funny 
nasal quality uh, to his voice. And, uh, and it was all very definite about what things were and weren't. And, and um, so, uh, so, okay, great. That's 5'8". That's what it is. Well, two years ago, a guy asked me about that, and I said, well, I don't know. I guess uh, that's, that's what George thought it was. He said, no, I just climbed it, and it's 5'10", you know. No way it's 5'8". So, and the rest of the climb is very run out and hairy, and, mm -hmm. and uh, although we thought it was just climbing. Right. And only rated at 5'7", which uh, gets people in trouble. Because I think it's going to be easy. Mm-hmm. And with the name, Easy Way Up, <laughs> you know, the wrong, I don't know, I think that was George's name too, so anyway, that's, uh, that's one of the <coughs> legacies of George in Salt Lake City is underrating all the, of course that was happening up here too, and at least as big away on Greg's climbs because in the 50, uh, 60s, 5'9 mm -hmm. was supposed to be basically the ultimate and 5'10 had just been accepted for a few climbs. So um, most of Greg's climbs were never rated beyond 5'9, a few 5'10, mm -hmm. but they actually turn out many of the 5'9s or 5'11s nowadays, mm -hmm. and uh, some of the 5'10s or 5'12s. So that's how mm -hmm. undergraded things were. <clears throat> what do you think about the rating system as a whole? Well, over the years, it's morphed a little bit, but basically it gives you a pretty good as assessment from area to area, climb to climb, uh, especially on climbs that have had enough traffic to get a consensus grade. And so it, it works pretty well. Right. Uh, what, what's hard for people who are just starting to climb to recognize is when they go to a new area, it might be different rock and <clears throat> different style of climbing. And so they think the area is either over or undergraded or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> but once they get used to the climbing, usually it starts to make sense. Mm -hmm. You doing okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm spending some time on the local climbs because I think they're, you know, this is, uh, after all, this is a Utah archive. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm trying to uh, 
make the connections and disconnections between Salt Lake and Ogden and other areas in the in the state. Um, in terms of of mountaineering type routes, both Ogden and Salt Lake have good mountaineering type routes. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got in Ogden, we've got the um, north and east facing slabs on Mount Ogden, and in uh, uh, and we also have the uh, um, Willard Spires area <clears throat> above Willard uh, with good uh, good climbs and <clears throat> once again quite different from uh, from the well there's quartzite and granite in the mountains of Salt Lake mm -hmm. Sundial Peak is quartzite for instance uh, Pfeifferhorn is quartzite I think and then you've got uh, um Lone Pine Peak, which is good granite, really great granite. And um, so you've got a lot of variety here. What you don't have is anything of great length and continuous severity. Mm -hmm. In Salt Lake, you've got climbs up to about six or uh, uh, 600 feet on the granite in Lone Pine, um, <coughs> in <coughs> the Willard Spires, you've got uh, climbed up to uh, 1,500 feet high on quartzite, mm -hmm. but there, um, there's really nothing more than about a thousand feet of continuous. Uh, difficulty on any of those climbs so you don't have anything really big but mm -hmm. it's good training ground for you can learn how to climb uh, good rock shattered rock yeah. different types of rock here in northern Utah so where do you get where do you go to where did you go at this time to to get high so to speak then well uh Uh, I think uh, in, when I was 16, this spring I was 16, George and Greg were going to Yosemite to climb the north, northwest phase of Half Dome together. Okay. And uh, so I rode along with them in hopes that uh, I could find a climbing partner to do some other things. Actually, I think Dave Dave Lowe went along, George's brother too. Oh, okay. Your and, other yeah. And um, I think the first climb I did there was with Dave. I, I'm, I can't remember for sure, but I think we did Royal Arches together, a classic moderate route. Uh, but then I wanted to do one of the bigger walls because that's what was 
most exciting to me at that time mm -hmm. was the idea of <laughs> getting up onto these huge walls that I'd been reading about in the climbing magazines and right. seeing pictures of. So um, I found, and I think we talked about this last time too, I found this guy, George Gerhardt, uh, who was going to the University of Utah um, at the time, and he must have, maybe George wrote out with, George Carhart mm -hmm. wrote out with us too, I don't, don't know for sure, but we decided to do a climb together on uh, Sentinel Rock called the Chouinard Herbert, and we did that, and uh, I learned a lot about um, uh, wall climbing right there on that first mm -hmm. uh, first climb. And I loved the length of the climb, although it wasn't huge. It was 14 pitches or something like that. And that was, uh, <laughs> I was hooked on uh, the overall experience of climbing for a day, not getting to the top and finding a ledge to bivouac on. Mm -hmm. and then climbing to the top <clears> that just added all the uh, a lot of new elements to the experience right one, one that I love and the aid uh, climbing was became quite interesting to me too and I became quickly a good aid climber a better aid climber than my Brother Greg, uh, I think, and probably better than my cousin George, too. Mm -hmm. I just took to the systems mm -hmm. pretty um, pretty well and uh, could organize myself for that. And uh, I learned how to move in and out of my aid climbing slings mm -hmm. from free move to aid move so I could move quite quickly. And, and uh, develop my own approach to it, which would, <coughs> which would be to not aid climb everything just because you were in aiders to start with. Mm -hmm. It would be to uh, make a few aid moves that were required and then if there was free climbing available, free climb for a few moves, then go back to aid and and it was a very efficient approach and it felt felt more satisfying to me personally than just uh, like people later on would do and even back then get into their aiders mm -hmm. and just stay there for an entire climb. I wonder what kind of uh, what kind of gear you had at this time. I mean, what what kind of gear were most people using doing using aid, doing aid climbing at this time? Well, the gear was real simple. We still had um, all through the '60s and even through the '70s. For me, there were no harnesses. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were people would tie harnesses out of a piece of webbing, or they would. There were a few commercial harnesses available starting in the early 70s mm -hmm. but what was most common was a two inch 
uh, length of webbing about 20 feet that we, you would wrap several times around your waist and then knot it. And that was supposed to serve as a way uh, to anchor the climbing rope and distribute the force of a fall mm -hmm. throughout your body. But obviously you only have about two or three inches of surface area to, right. to take a force. So falls were more serious things back then. And also climbing on walls with that um, <coughs> swami belt was a whole different, uh, different. And Swami was around your chest, right? Well, no, it's around your waist, mm -hmm. uh, but as soon as you fall, it's <laughs> uh, it's uh, under your chest and choking you, you yeah. know, hurting your ribs. So, um, so that was one of the biggest things. Just we didn't use harness, mm -hmm. and. Uh, when we w would repel, we'd use a diaper sling uh, for repelling to take the put the weight on the legs. And <laughs> diaper slings weren't comfortable, but they were serviceable mm -hmm. to kind of making a harness. And, uh, and then as we climbed and Jumard, for instance, following a pitch on a big wall uh, to take the strain off our waist we used to use belay seats hooked to the jumar carabiners mm -hmm. so you would jumar up and then sit down into the belay seat rather than come onto the um, um, swami belt and so we worked ways around hanging off that swami belt. Right. So it worked, but it was, uh, harnesses are just so much nicer. And then, of course, boots we used um, <coughs> starting in the early days, mid-60s, it was uh, uh, glitter shoes called Spiders or Cortinas. Uh, Kronhofer's were another brand. These were uh, suede leather uppers with a uh, vibram sole, mm -hmm. kind of hard vibram sole, not too, uh, definitely not sticky rubber like today's shoes. Right. And that's another thing. All these free climbs we were doing were in those kind of shoes. Right. Um, which makes them, would make them a grade or two harder these days. Um, the other thing is to a large extent on the free climbs, we weren't taking falls on them. Right. Uh, it was rare that there was fall on, on, uh, on the lead, uh, you know, on these climbs. <coughs> I mean, that there are exceptions to that but, mm -hmm. um, not many so so mostly it was just going out and doing them ground up no falls on the lead bolting as needed uh, 
Um, then the other gear was just standard old oval carabiners still later in the dec <coughs> decade of the 60s. Chouinard came out with D-shaped carabiners that were a little better for aid climbing. Mm -hmm. um, we had no belay devices. We used uh, just around the waist belays mm -hmm. and uh, used to hold falls with those. But falls were so infrequent. Right. That... Uh, but we, I, I don't remember anybody dropping somebody uh, with that old around-the-waist belay. Hmm. Um, I'm sure it happened. Yeah. But not on climbs I can remember. <laughs> and I'm sure I'd remember it. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So, um, and then we had pitons... Uh, later in the decade, we started to have knots, mm -hmm. uh, but that's another discussion, the evolution from pitons to knots. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> um, in the late 60s, uh, a, sh a boot came out called the Robbins boot mm -hmm. that... Uh, Royal, Royal Robbins had helped to design with one of the European uh, boot makers. I think it was Galibier. Uh -huh. uh, and those we used for everything. Free climbing, wall climbing, walking in, mm -hmm. walking out. They were really versatile, versatile boots. But by today's standards they people can't believe that we climbed stuff that we did in those <coughs> i mean they really were a light boot they weren't a rock shoe mm -hmm. but they were great for standing in aid slings for uh, you know heavy duty wall usage and um you know, we didn't know they were so bad for free, free climbing either. Right. Because they worked okay. Uh, lots of, so many, <laughs> so many differences in gear between then and now. I mean, no synthetic clothing, you know, either cotton or wool. Um, <laughs> was about it. Nylon in, uh, well, even in the 60s, we were using 60 40 cloth anoraks. That's cotton in uh, cotton poly, I guess. Anyway, some, with some sort of water repellent treatment. Non, not very functional. Right. Um, for weather, <laughs> weather proofs. So we really didn't have good clothing or good, good gear at all, but it didn't matter. Um, they had less good clothing and gear in the 30s right. than the Alps, you know? So each generation, I think, 
doesn't realize that they don't have the greatest stuff. Yeah. Although we're nowadays we're getting pretty good quality. Yeah. You know. Anyway, so that whole thing that is, I mean, you can go on and on about the differences in gear between then and now. Right. Um, and the beginning, beginning of the um, nuts, I mean, pitons to nuts for protection and aid in rock climbing, uh, it started in England in, in the uh, 40s and 50s when uh, climbers started to use uh, machine nuts uh, threaded with a cord with the, uh, the threads on the nuts filed smooth so they wouldn't cut the cord mm-hmm. um, and jammed in cracks for protection. And then uh, in the mid-60s, Royal Robbins went over to uh, England and climbed there and wrote a couple of articles uh, in the American Climbing Magazine at the time Mm -hmm. called Summit about that experience of learning to climb with nuts. And it really excited all of us for the ideas that it was non-destructive to the rock and it was a more subtle form of uh, protection device that caused you to have to to read the rock better and to get closer in touch with the medium Mm. and that was always, (laughs) always a good thing a good thing in our minds anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, after reading that article, I went out and got to the garage and immediately manufactured a number of slings with various size uh, machine nuts on them up to about, <laughs> up to about three inches mm-hmm. in diameter and um, grabbed my friend Bruce Bruce Rogar Mm -hmm. and went up to Snow Basin and did a nice long route on the east-facing slabs up there that we called the tree route. Tree route? Yeah. Um, And that's a that name is actually a, there's a double meaning that to that because uh, it's tree root R O O T because instead of tree route uh-huh. uh, because uh, uh, I think it's on the second pitch you actually climb a root for about thirty feet that's hanging down from a big pond. Oh, really? A little as that skinny, <laughs> skinny root flexes all over the place, <laughs> and it's really fun. But we went up and did that climb, which is about five inches of climbing up to about five eight, protected and uh, only with those machine nuts. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that was one of the first long routes in the country put up uh, with just that type of non-destructive right. protection. I think that, yeah, that would have been 1967. Okay. So, uh, and gradually that attitude <laughs> took over in, in, uh, in America and by the, by, by about 1970, I think, uh, commercial nuts were available from both U.S. Mm-hmm. and foreign manufacturers. Right. And there was a kind of a major revolution in their use and moving away from pitons in many cases. Mm-hmm. How did it, uh, you said a, a couple minutes ago, how did, it, how did it help you get closer in touch with the medium as far as this, this new gear form? Well, Imagine if you would taking a piton that's approximately the right size. You look at the crack, see it's about a half inch. So you take a half inch or a three quarter inch angle mm-hmm. off your rag, you poke it in there, you take a hammer, and you just slam it home, mm-hmm. and it <laughs> burrows its way, grooves its way into the edge of the crack. And if it's a little oversized, you just keep pounding it till it gets, uh, till the eye meets the edge of the rock and it's there totally solid, you know, and, 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 um, you just clip it and then you go. Mm -hmm. It's not a very subtle, uh, uh, reading of the rock, whereas that same half inch crack using a nut you first you feel it with your fingertips to find where you you look at it visually to find a little constriction that might be a place where you can slot a nut above and it's smaller down below so that if you pull down it won't come out right and then you you visualize eyeball that then you put your fingertips up in there to feel the inside whether it flares to the inside or whether that constriction is just on the surface of the crack and it's really not constricted behind right so you know what's there so then you take your nut out and you carefully place it in there and maybe you've identified a spot where there's a little crystal that will hold that nut Mm -hmm. in just the right place and resist being twisted out of the crack as you climb by it and so on. So there's a much closer relationship between the climber and the medium Mm -hmm. climbing with nuts. And it's even more than that. I mean, you, depending on the rock type you're climbing with nuts, with nuts you're, um, 
you're, you're assessing um, the quality of each each section of rock, whether it's uh, friable, brittle, mm -hmm. whether it could be grooved out uh, like a soft sand, sandstone that might seem to be a good placement, but you know that it's soft enough mm -hmm. that not, not can groove right through it under the force of a fall. I mean, you really, it starts to, the rock starts to really become a part of your every decision, you know? Right. Whereas opposed to before, you were just kind of going over it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's more, you become more at one with the stone. <laughs> <laughs> to get philosophical yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of cliche. Right. In terms of um, northern Utah here, by the late 60s, we were already climbing, well, by 1970s, certainly we were climbing mostly with nuts. Okay. <laughs> well, Jeff, do you want to... Yeah, we pause can. it. Yeah, let's do that. This is uh, John Worsencroft, and I'm sitting down with uh, Jeff Lowe again. It's uh, April third, and uh, Jeff, uh, you had mentioned you wanted to start off talking about free climbing in northern Utah. Why don't we just in, in the mid 1960s? Let's start yeah. right there. Well, I. Uh, <clears throat> You know, as we said earlier, um, Harold Goodrow had uh, established probably almost certainly the hardest free climb in the country back in the late 40s in uh, Big Cottonwood Canyon, uh, almost without knowing what he had done. Right. And a similar thing happened in the... Um, <clears throat> early to mid-60s uh, in uh, Little Cottonwood Canyon and up here in Ogden area with um, Greg and George and to, to a lesser extent myself. Uh, an example would be uh, um, George's... Uh, climb of the dorsal, excuse me, <coughs> the dorsal fin in uh, Little Cottonwood Canyon mm -hmm. in, uh, I think it was 65 with uh, Mark McQuarrie. And I think we've talked about Mark's death. Yeah. Yes, we have. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that was 65 and that climb is today rated... Um, uh, five, 510D, which is, uh, um, which is probably as hard as any climb in the country at that time. Right. Um, and it wasn't, of course, known for about 10 years that it was that difficult. 
And then Greg was climbing things even more difficult at the same time. Yeah. Uh, up here in Ogden and up in the City of Rocks, he, um, in uh, pro <laughs> probably 66, he did, uh, he did the uh, tree crack, which is uh, 511A today. Mm -hmm. Um, he did about the same time he did um, uh, uh, difficult climbs in the city of rocks rated 510 today mm -hmm. um, he did um, uh, sometime in about there uh, 66 or 67 he did a climb on the school schoolroom cliffs mm -hmm. called uh, um, <coughs> Pass or Flail, which is 511D or 512A t today. And uh, back in, uh, I guess I was 14, I, I did a, a climb called that's now called airtime in Ogden Canyon mm -hmm. that uh, they rate 510C. Um, and then Greg did a number of other hard climbs in that, that era capped off by um, 1967, the um, uh, macabre wall roof. Right. And that's uh, only had a, <clears throat> only had a couple, couple of ascents. But it's uh, uh, somewhere in in the upper 512 range, mm -hmm. and it's not uh, easy to protect, and so, so you 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 can't really afford to fall on it. So it's right. not like there um, these climbs were being established with falls. Right. Uh, we weren't falling on them, uh, so it's. It, it was really kind of a high watermark, actually, in free climbing. Yeah. Um, in this country, and really, at the, with Greg, in Greg's case, on a world uh, level, he was he was definitely uh, probably probably the best free climber in the world in in the mid sixties. Right. Anyway, it, it wasn't known for a long time that that was the case, and it's still very little known. Is that uh, is that mostly because it's uh, such a different climb, or is it just uh, you guys just didn't tell anybody? Well, it, it's never been really publicized or anything. So mm -hmm. uh, the book I'm working on, I'll give a chapter to Greg and to George and and try and give them credit for what they did. Right. You know? um, because it's, it is historically important. Yeah. And, um, and <clears throat> once again, it, it was not in general. Greg used, he used to carry a block of gymnastic chalk mm -hmm. in his shirt pocket, and he'd rub his fingertips on that. 
but George and myself weren't using chalk and we didn't have the sticky rubber right. shoes and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's pretty, pretty high standard stuff and very, um, very pure. Of course, uh, we were using pitons to protect the climbs right. because, which is actually more difficult because to pound a piton compared to setting a nut yeah. is, is generally speaking more difficult. So had using chalk not really, uh, become commonplace in climbing at this time. I mean, was it, was it weird? It wasn't, it wasn't commonplace yet. Uh, John Gill had introduced, uh, chalk to bouldering in the, um, early sixties and, uh, but it wasn't generally used on climbs for another 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then in the late 60s, early 70s, people started carrying it in little chalk bags. Right. And they'd powder it so it was easier to coat the fingers with. Yeah, kind of like it is today. Yeah, and it, it was in the early days of uh, <clears throat> use of chalk, it was very controversial because you know it obviously you can see see the white chalk on the rock so it's a, a visual um you know um, um visually not very nice and yeah um, it leaves a residue yeah it it cakes the holds eventually has to be cleaned off and so you know but it does in fact um, aid in the in the friction on the uh, on, on the f fingertips and uh, yeah. <laughs> keeps uh, keeps your hands drier, so it's allows a more consistent uh, grip. So yeah, it was about sixty seven then when uh, I think. I think Greg was probably there and George was there and several other climbers from the area on the uh, on the filmmaking uh, on this Devil's Brigade movie, which had a number of... Uh, Devil's Brigade, I think that was, just for the record, I think that was released in 1968 and it was a, a fairly popular movie that came out of the 1960s, kind of the... Uh, the World War II, um, you know, uh, uh, genre of, uh, you know, great World War II uh, uh, epic movies and uh, mythic stories about uh, commando units and stuff like that. Right. And, and they hired us to be some of the extras storming a, a cliff in a classic... Um, scene of you know ropes strung along this cliff and troops storming uh, and uh, an encampment now it was filmed above in, the cliff this, this part was filmed in uh in lone peak right well no it was filmed on the shoulder of lone peak about uh about uh, oh probably oh a third of the way or a quarter of the the way up toward the the cirque okay and um, 
<clears throat> there was a kind of a very rotten cliff up there, but they the uh, producers of the film had found a location that they could um, drive four-wheel drive vehicles to the top of this cliff and set up the um, the filming mm -hmm. uh, from there. And then every morning they uh, drive drive the crew and the <coughs> actors and the extras up there. And I think we spent two days, uh, maybe maybe more. I can't remember, but there were um, prob <laughs> probably uh, it seems to me fifty or so extras, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I was too young to take part, but I lied about my age, and because um, I really wanted the money. Yeah. And they looked the. I I can't, but it was seemed like a lot of money. I think it was might have been fifty bucks a day, mm -hmm. which was huge right. back then. So I really wanted the money, and uh, and I was small for my age looked even younger so yeah. they had to know i w i was not uh, i shouldn't be there but they allowed it to happen and there was an accident during the filming uh and it happened on the rope right next to me they had these i think one inch uh pretty uh, large diameter ropes strung in parallel lines down the cliff, mm -hmm. probably about 10 different ropes spread by about 10, 15 feet mm -hmm. apart. <clears throat> and then they had uh, a line of climbers, or quote, climbers. All you had to do is say you were a climber. And yeah, the vast majority of the extras weren't climbers, and uh, it was quite steep. and And the only uh, uh, safety consideration was just the ropes. <laughs> you were climbing them hand over hand, and uh, if you let go, you would fall to the ground. And in fact. Um, uh, I was just starting up. I was probably 20 feet above the base of this cliff during the one of the cuts on this, um, one of the takes on the scene. And um, you know, I think the height of the cliff was probably 80 feet or something. Mm -hmm. But the guy on, one of the guys on the rope next to mine dropped his rifle no, he first dropped his helmet, came right by me, <laughs> and then his rifle came by because I guess he uh, reached for the helmet and then his uh, rifle sling came off his shoulder. And then uh, he came by <laughs> flying through the air and uh, impacted on the slope below me. And I was the first to get to him, but he had fallen probably... Uh, I'd say 60 feet or so. Wow. And uh, I got to him, and he had a, a bad compound fracture of the ankle. 
um, and obviously internal injuries. I thought for sure he was going to die, mm-hmm. but there was a helicopter rescue. They got him out of there, and uh, as I understand it, he survived. And well, that's good. Um, yeah, <laughs> and I I don't know the rest of the story, but that was my first uh, involvement with with filmmaking and climbing and I use the word climbing in quotes there. (laughs) It was the most dangerous possible way to go about doing this. Today, that film company would be sued for millions and millions of dollars and they'd win the, the, the suit. But in those days, it seemed to be just fine. And you said that was in, what, 1967, 1968? Well, that was 67. And so that was right in the time that we were, uh, you know, doing some good free climbs and starting to uh, take trips to Yosemite Valley. And obviously every summer we were climbing in the Tetons as well. Um, And we had... uh, established a tradition with Steinfeld's Climbing Club of uh, trips to City Rocks, where uh, we probably did in the mid to late 60s, uh, two or uh, at least a couple hundred routes up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, many of Greg's were, were really at a high standard. And so... Uh, and we didn't record record them though. We were of the uh, 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 we we thought it was best to leave the um, adventure of discovering routes mm-hmm. to subsequent parties. And uh, now I kind of wish we had recorded a little more carefully some of those climbs because. Um, Historically, it would have it would have been nice to uh, have that record. Get that? Yeah, I'll, okay. I'll just. All right, we're back on. <coughs> Jeff, the the more and more I interview people of. From your generation, the climbing community, the more I, I realized that that uh, the impact of the Vietnam War had on people. I was wondering if that had any impact on your climbing or uh, your community of friends. Um, it just seems to me that everybody came of age right around yeah the time that the Vietnam War was going on, and that was a big impact. Yeah, it, it did. It did have a major impact, not just of on climbing, of course. It, it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, a time when people were really polarized, as they've been in the uh, in the last, uh, you know, five or six years with the uh, war war in Iraq. Um, uh, you know, uh, Mike and Greg both uh, joined the special forces in, in the 
late 60s. And um, um, neither one of them went to, uh, I was going to say Iraq, but <laughs> Vietnam. Right. But they were in the military, you know, and <clears throat> they could have been called up, uh, but they weren't. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so I think they were... They were, Mike was a mountaineering instructor with the Green Berets. Oh, okay. And uh, in fact, he he did some courses with the uh, uh, special forces up in uh, Lone Peak Cirque during the late 60s. So, um, and he was a guide in the, for a couple of summer, summers with Exum in the Tetons. And as for me, I was still a little bit young. Uh, well, I guess I was 18 in 69, so that's, uh, uh, but uh, I was part of the opposition to the war. Right. And um, as was my father, mm -hmm. who was a good Repub Republican from northern Utah, but he did World War II, yeah, it? yeah, and but he thought the war was uh, foolish and we shouldn't have been there. Do you uh, remember talking to him about it? About oh that? yeah, yeah. He he was adamant in his op opposition to being in Vietnam, mm -hmm. um, and so that was and Mike and Greg, I think. Were, didn't enlist because of a commitment to the war effort. I, I'm not sure why they enlisted. But, mm. You know, uh, I think they were both promised, you know, uh, roles in the uh, training, right. mountaineering training thing. And I think that made up for any possibility of going to Vietnam. Yeah. Um, but Greg never got to do any of that training. And he returned fairly bitter about the experience, uh, the military experience. He, I think he came back by, uh, I think he was out of the Special Forces by 1970 or something, he, um, or 71. Mm -hmm. And he came back with, you know, some pretty horrible stories about his experience in the mil military with, uh, you know, <clears throat> really um, um, well, uh, just, you know, officers and, and commanders that were actually crazy. <laughs> and uh, having to follow commands from these people he couldn't re respect right. was really tough for him. And he ended up uh, with some, um, <clears throat> yeah, an overall real negative view of uh, the military hierarchy. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't sit well with him to have actually stupid people directing right. him and, and actually people dying or getting hurt in training exercises for, for no reason. 
and he got in trouble for speaking up and you know so he had a struggle in 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 the military mike on the other hand uh really enjoyed it so but he got to do what he wanted to do which was teaching climbing and Mm -hmm. you know so i guess it can go either way Uh, but the, you know, the, uh, the late sixties were also when, when, uh, George in particular, uh, got the movement going between his cousins and meaning my brothers and myself and, uh, and some of the other local salt. Salt Lake climbers and Ogden climbers to winter climbing. And um, I was involved in ski racing in the winter at that time. So I I wasn't involved in some of the uh, early winter climbs in the Tetons that those guys did, but they were great climbs. Do you remember uh, who these groups were? I mean, were they were they affiliated with clubs or they? Yeah, there was the Alpenbach okay. Climbing Club from Salt Lake City that George was a member of, and so there were there were uh, a number of the usual suspect, suspects from there that were part of the early winter uh, climbs of Mount Moran and Mount Owen and the uh, on the Grand Teton. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it kind of um, uh, probably the most important climb back then was the north face of um, the Grand Teton in winter in 1968 mm. with Mike and Greg and George and Rick Horn uh, from Wyoming. And um, they spent four days uh, I think in January up there on the on the climb, very cold weather, and it was yeah. a, a really major climb for the for the time. And um, I was uh, ski racing uh, in Jackson Hole that weekend, and I was very jealous <laughs> of those guys. Uh, and uh, at the end of the weekend, uh, you know, I. I, I think I did okay in the in the race, but I got to um, those guys had just gotten back to Valley after completing their climb, and <clears throat> we were out for dinner that night, mm-hmm. and they were telling the stories of the climb, and I was just green with envy. You know, I <laughs> I. I was really conflicted between ski racing and climbing, right. and their climb seemed so much greater than the ski race that I had just taken part in. So, <laughs> so was there at this time? Was there a lot of interplay between the Ogden group and the, and the Salt Lake guys? Quite a quite a bit, and the main the main. Uh, instigator of that kind of was George Mm -hmm. because he had grown up in Ogden and he was now in uh, school at the U um, and and a member of Alpenbach and a member of Alpenbach yeah so 
There was quite a bit of interplay between the two uh, clubs and the Wasatch, Wasatch Mountain Club as well. But I would say um, the Steinfels were the uh, club. The Ogden Club was sort of, for some reason, seemed to have less cachet or something. Mm-hmm. The Alpenbach seemed to be the the uh, the more important club. In fact, Ogden always uh, was kind of a backwatering compared to Salt Lake, mm-hmm. but that's because we didn't know that the climbs Greg was doing were the quality, the quality that they were the quality that they were because no one else was doing them. So basically, Affenbach had a better PR campaign then. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and because you know the granite in Little Cottonwood is more more uh, impressive than the quartzite around Ogden. You know, um, it's it's it just seemed it seemed that we always kind of labored under the uh, impression that Salt Lake was the more important center mm-hmm. of climate. It's been that way through the decades too. Right. Um, anyway, so, but we were doing good climbs up here in Ogden. Uh, and Greg uh, was doing things like the north face and, and south face of um, London Spire up in the Willard uh, Spires. And, and those were good climbs, you know, Teton-type climbs with climbing up to 5'9 and, you know, 50 pitches and that sort of thing. And I'm going to take a break sure. and go to... You know, um, speaking of the Willard Spires, that was a real training ground. We were spending summers in the mid-60s. You know, we'd almost always do a trip up to the Tetons and do some classic climbs up there. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, we had with uh, the Willard Spires... Um, that kind of mountain rock, fractured mountain rock to climb on, on about the same scale as the climbs in the Tetons, you know, seven to 15 pitches of climbing. And um, um, I I just remember... you know, thinking of it as good training for the t- uh, bigger mountains, but it was also just good climbing in its own right. And um, Greg and Mike and somebody else, maybe Rob Brown, had done the uh, first ascent of the south face of London Spire, which is uh, probably about 
eight or ten pitches of five seven climbing and then greg had uh done with rob brown i think uh, a route on the right side of the bigger north north face of london spire and that was a more difficult climb um probably five nine or maybe even five ten the way greg did it he would always choose the more difficult uh, right. of the the lines uh, he was always looking for the hardest way rather than the easiest way and but that was i think 15 pitches so that was a good adventure and um larger than things down in salt lake right. um more adventurous really um and then i had done a route up the center of the north face with uh an eastern climber by the name of Gavin Morris. And that was probably in 67, I think I was 16. And then that same year later, I did a, uh, a solo climb on the south face to the west of uh, the, the center route. And that was uh, my first uh, pretty big solo. I mean, it was about uh, over a thousand feet of of mm -hmm. good, um, uh, probably five eight climbing, maybe even up to five nine. And so, um, uh, when I think about it, I was only sixteen when I was doing that. You know, right. at the time it didn't seem seem much, but. Already by 16, I was uh, doing that kind of climbing. And Greg and somebody else did a route to the left of mine, farther west even, on a real uh, steep and overhanging scoop uh, uh, kind of facet of the south face that ends on the uh, the big step on the southwest uh, ridge of london spire and that was quite hard i'm sure it was five five ten and another eight or ten pitch climb mm. so there were good climbs being done up here just probably most of them haven't been repeated mm. um, uh, were these mostly day trips or they were yeah they were day, they were just day climbs although when Gavin and I did our route on the north face, we went, we hiked up the night before and and bivouacked at the base of the face. Just, uh, and when we say bivouac in the old sense, it's just sitting down on the ledge, putting your feet in your pack and right. shivering <laughs> for the night, you know, so we didn't have heavy packs, but. Right. And then uh, did the climb and walked out the next day. Um, and all these climbs are probably underrated. Uh, I remember I was doing, starting to do a lot of climbing with George at that time. And so my <laughs> exposure to the ratings was based on what he was saying. on what George was saying and right. 
uh, we did some climbs up in uh, um, Lone Peak Cirque together um, that were, uh, I, I remember we did uh, the center uh, route on Tom's Thumb in Lone Peak Cirque, and we rated it 5.7, and now it's rated 5.9 plus, you know? <laughs> and so the, we were way off in our ratings. And that's mostly George's fault. <laughs> but by the end of the 60s, Mike and Greg had uh, were off in the military. George was um, still going to school at the U. <clears throat> I had gone to California to go to college at Lake Tahoe. Mm -hmm. I was uh, um, <clears throat> starting to do walls in Yosemite. Um, in fact, I think it was, what was it? Uh, well, I, I did uh, my first climb on El Cap with George in 69, I think, I had gone out to go to school and George came out to do um, the Salathe Wall. So we joined up and, and did the uh, seventh ascent of the Salathe Wall um, on El Cap together. And then the next spring, I went with Greg and Eric Eliason, uh, a climber from Salt Lake, who was my age, and we joined up in, uh, in the valley to do the North America Wall, which at the time had the reputation as being the hardest um, big, big wall climb in the world. Uh, but uh, we uh, did the first three pitches together and uh, Eric didn't want to go on, mm -hmm. and Greg uh, wasn't feeling great about it either, so they wanted to go down, so we had three ropes with us, and so I said, well, okay, you guys can string the ropes down, but go find me somebody to climb with. <laughs> so I stayed up. Uh, they went down and I stayed up there at the top of the ropes and uh, waited and I, I guess I expected them to go down to camp four and round up some climber to <laughs> come climb the NA wall with and uh, it was getting dark and so at dark I rappelled down and just as I got to the bottom, uh, this guy comes chugging up to the base going, I'll go up with you. It was Don Peterson. Don who, Peterson? Don Peterson, who was uh, a strong young climber at the, at the time. Um, had already a pretty good reputation, but he was a, pretty much a hothead and, mm -hmm. and uh, had a reputation for being hard to get along with too. 
on the walls, but a good climber. And anyway, so uh, since I had just come down, we agreed to go up the next, uh, go back to Camp 4 and start up the next day, okay. which we did. And we made the fourth ascent of uh, the North America wall together. And uh, it was a not the most pleasant wall I'd ever done because Don was, um, he was vocal in his disapproval of everything that his par partner was doing that was less than perfect in his estimation. <laughs> so I spent half my time cringing on the blaze, listening to him bellowing out his, um, you know, uh, invective. Uh, you know, it was just not a fun experience. Um, so when we got to the top of that climb, my girlfriend at the time met us and we hung out for a little bit and relaxed. Don grabbed a few items in his little pack and took off. I never saw him again for years after that. Oh, really? He left us with the huge haul bag and all the most of the gear to carry down, and he just stormed off. He was he was a real uh, that wasn't a good experience, but it was a good climb. Yeah. And um, the next time you met him, were you guys cordial or? Uh, well, the next it was years later at a party in El Dorado Springs. Uh, Colorado and he was he went out of his way to sort of be nice and and make up for it and we yeah it was okay he was he I, I he seemed to have matured out of that hot-headedness but right. yeah he had a reputation for being that way Royal Royal Robbins wrote an article about a route that they had done on the uh, northwest face of Half Dome. Uh, I think it was shortly after our climb on, on uh, it, it was either after our climb on the North America wall or just before it, but <clears throat> Robbins wrote about his temper and how hard it was to be with him hmm. at that time. And I, when I read the article, um, it I I just kept shaking my head, yeah, in agreement, yeah, that's <laughs> that's how it was. It was not. He was one of the best climbers. Don was at that time, very powerful, and but just so impatient, and hmm. you know, not he wasn't climbing for the same same reasons I was. <clears throat> Talk about the the importance of a, of a good partner. Yeah, well, that you know it's critical. Um, and Greg and I were really good uh, um, partners, you know. Uh, uh, and George and I were good partners. Greg and George weren't good together. Why's that? Well, they were two top dogs, uh, both believing they knew the better way to approach everything. 
And uh, so it was a constant kind of battle for supremacy in the team. Um, And Mike and George were a bit the same way, butting heads together. Uh, And Mike and I were an okay partnership, but he wasn't my favorite partner either. Greg and I were, you know, well-suited. George and I were well-suited. And Dave uh, was uh, a good partner, too. Um, But these, and and then some of my earlier partners that uh, I enjoyed climbing with were uh, Ken Christensen, he was fun to climb with. Uh, Brad and Bruce Rogar were both good partners. John Marsh. Um, <clears throat> um, little later on, uh, Cactus Brian, who is an old ski racing buddy from uh, Lake Tahoe, and I, I got him into climbing and his first climb was uh, the uh, uh, North Face of Angels Landing, uh, the first ascent of that. That was Cactus's first climb. I taught him how to Jumar, and mm-hmm. and uh, and we went off and did that in 1970, I think, in uh, Zion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he didn't know that it was something he should have prepared for over years. <laughs> you know, I taught him one day how to Jumar and the next day we're up on the climb. <laughs> Talk about trial by fire. Mm-hmm. But he was competent as an individual, so it was not a problem for him. Yeah. You know, um, that's, that's what makes a good partner is uh, a competent human, you know. Um, somebody who would be a good carpenter or a good, you know, good partner on a road trip, you know, somebody who who um, can hold a conversation, not just about climbing, but, you know, who reads books and has an interest in the world outside of, uh, you know, a narrow range of subjects. Uh, mm-hmm. Because climbing is, um, you know, if you're just focused on climbing all the time, then then you can make things more difficult than they need to be. You can, you know, you can get all bound up in it instead of just going out and basically having a good time. Even when you're pushing yourself, uh, you can push yourself actually further if you're not focused on how hard it is, you're pushing yourself. Right. And uh, and if it's all about fun and exploration and those kind of things, it's a, a better uh, better motivation than you know proving yourself uh, in some fashion for your own purposes or trying to prove to other people that you're some kind of you know macho uh, guy Mm. and so the good in the early 70s well 
uh, I went to school in Lake Tahoe for uh, 68, 69, and 70. And uh, <clears throat> in 70, my brother Mike had started uh, teaching at Colorado Outward Bound. And he got me over from, um, <clears throat> from uh, Lake Tahoe to Lake City, Colorado to act as an assistant on one of his courses. I wasn't his assistant, but I assisted another instructor um, on one of the courses. And um, it was about that time that the school I was going to, Tahoe Paradise College, folded. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't, I couldn't um, uh, transfer my credits anywhere. So I just decided that was the end of my <laughs> academic career. And I, I had also, uh, that year I had skied my last ski race, I had decided I, I was gonna just climb. And so I decided that I'd had enough school. I was totally wrapped up in climbing and that's what I was gonna do. So I went to Colorado, I enjoyed the outward bound uh, experience. So I immediately started uh, working for outward bound and moved to Colorado. Tell me a little bit about the outward bound program, you know, what it did. Well, outward bound is a program that was developed by Kurt Hahn, a, a uh, British uh, fellow after World War II, Kurt had observed that, you know, when a ship would go down in the in the uh, northern oceans uh, uh, during the war, that often it was the crusty old guys that survived, not the young young bucks, you know, mm -hmm. and it and uh, it was. His theory, and I think it's been borne out uh, by in so many ways over the years, was that the experience that the older guys had uh, in adversity had uh, taught them how to deal with adversity su right. successfully. So the more experience you have, the more the better your chances of survival in a different, difficult situation. And uh, that that's actually a proven concept uh, at this point, but it was relatively new uh, back then. And he developed this Outward Bound program for youngsters uh, based on that idea that if you give kids and teenagers and young people a chance to get experience in the outdoors that they'll be um, it it will make them uh, it would be a good thing for them. right and um, so that was the beginning of the outward bound program in in uh, Great Britain and I think it was the late or mid 60s that uh, the North American programs were started in Colorado and Hurricane Island uh, uh, 
programs, and then I think they had a Northwest program too. I I'm not sure when they all started, but right. by by the uh, late '60s, early '70s, the Colorado program was well well established, and um, it was based out of Lake City, Colorado. They also they had several bases, uh, Leadville and Lake City, and and um, uh, Redstone, I think, uh, out of near Aspen. Mm-hmm. I went to work for the uh, Lake City Outward Bound mm-hmm. uh, in 1970 and um, spent several years working for Outward Bound. I'd work a few months for them, then climb, and then work a few months and then climb. And um, <clears throat> So what kind of... Uh outdoor program did you guys run what was the well we the 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 a standard course would be three weeks and you'd take uh people and you'd you'd go do um expeditions through the mountains say up to a week in duration or even 10 days Mm -hmm. the kids would have to pack their own packs carry their own food uh, there might be resupply drops where, where uh, you know, uh, you'd cross a, a road and, and meet a van and get resupplied. And, and you'd learn, you know, they'd learn to uh, uh, read maps and, uh, and orienteer and first aid and... Mm. and um, uh, learn to climb and you'd climb pe- peaks with them and learn to camp and and then uh, each course would have a uh, a solo at the end of the time uh, three days solo where they were not given food and they um, uh, they basically had a tent and they'd be on their own and and uh, just uh, learning to deal with uh, with themselves right. with no distractions and no food for several days, which uh, was pretty radical for some of them. Right. You know? um, and during those times, uh, the instructors would, you know, without... Uh, interrupting the solo would check in on them, you know, from a distance and make sure they were not in any uh, distress. But what we used to do during those times is get a lot of climbing in for ourselves and have have a good time uh, while the students were on solo. So I'm assuming most of your, your climbing during this time was probably done in, in uh, Colorado then. Well, no. Uh, in fact, a lot in Yosemite, a lot in Colorado, a lot in Zion. And in the late 60s, uh, I started uh, making trips in the summer up to uh, the Canadian Rockies. Hmm. And uh, so... By the by, nineteen seventy, I had established sort of a a North American circuit for my year. I'd work for a few months, mostly in the winter, for 
Colorado, outward bound, and then I would uh, start uh, start off the spring by going to uh, Yosemite Valley and doing. Uh, usually, I used to look at an El Cap wall as as uh, a way to uh, kind of kickstart the fitness for the right for the season. So I'd go to the valley, uh, do a wall on El Cap to get, um, you know, three or four days of hard work under the belt and that would get a start on fitness. Mm -hmm. Then maybe go to Zion and do a few routes and maybe uh, some climbing in the Sierra Nevada or um, Colorado. Then travel up to the Canadian Canadian Rockies and uh, where George had introduced me to the 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 great uh, walls that are up there the mixed rock and ice and and uh, climbing on on the big faces up there mm -hmm. uh, which would be comparable to the big European uh, uh, walls which were better known the Matterhorn and the Eiger and the Grand, Grand Jurass and that sort of thing. Right. Uh, but yeah, George uh, and I, George had started climbing up there a year or two before, probably in 69 or something. Mm -hmm. And um, and I went up there with him in 1970, summer of 1970 for the first time. In a nine-day trip from Salt Lake City, I I can't remember how I got. To, anyway, that summer I was living in Salt Lake with my girlfriend Christy in an apartment, and um, um, George and I and Christy took a trip up there, and in nine days we drove up. George and I did four or five climbs, including a couple of first ascents, including uh, first ascent of the uh, north face of uh, Mount Temple, mm -hmm. and um, which was a big route comparable to like the Eiger in Switzerland right. or something, and, uh, and then drove back all in the space of nine days. And that was how the trips used to be with George. You know, over the years, he's, anybody who's climbed with him, um, I thought it was kind of normal, you know, but he's, he's been more successful than almost any three other climbers. You, uh, you just go and, you know, when you're going with George, you're gonna get up the climbs you go to do. Yeah. Um, So it was a good experience for me to have him as a mentor, uh, being, I think he was six, uh, six years older. Right. And he was just a pretty hard case, actually. Um, but, you know, safe climber and, uh, uh, you know, um, 
he wasn't really dangerous. He would just push yeah. hard. And a storm was just a storm. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily an excuse to bail was, out was of the it. Game ender, huh? No. <laughs> well, how'd you feel if we took a break here? Yeah, no, I'm I'm fine. That's good. It's John Worscroft again sitting down with Jeff Lowe and it is April 24th. Jeff, why don't you go ahead? Okay. Um, well, although we talked about Outward Bound a bit last time, um, which uh, brought me from um, California to Colorado in about 1970. Uh, it was the summer of uh, leaving California. Uh, my girlfriend Christy Northrup and I uh, got a, um, uh, an apartment in Salt Lake City. I guess we split the difference between Tahoe and Cal Colorado. Um, Where was she from? She was from South, uh, South Lake Tahoe. Okay. And uh, so we got this apartment for the summer. And uh, that summer, my cousin George uh, uh, invited me to go to the Can Canadian Rockies for the first time. And uh, not, not the first time for him. He had made a couple of very successful climbing trips up there um, in the previous couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, so anyway, he really intrigued me with his stories about the mountains up there. Mm -hmm. uh, big faces like the big European alpine faces and many of them still unclimbed and it sounded real interesting and I was uh, uh, although I had been primarily a uh, well completely a rock a rock climber <clears throat> prior to that time I had always wanted uh, to do some alpine climbing and and ice climbing. So George uh, invited me on this trip, and I I think it was probably I'm not sure if it was July or August, but we had nine days round trip from uh, Salt Lake City, and I think it was probably George's time constraints that kept us so. Uh, you know, to such a, a tight timeline, mm -hmm. but uh, we left um, Salt Lake and drove up when I'm sure we didn't stop. We just uh, <clears throat> shared the driving chores and drove straight up, whatever it is, 14 or 16 hours up to mm -hmm. um, Calgary and uh, immediately uh, got our gear together and trying to think, I think the first 
climb we did was the north face of Mount Athabasca, which had recently been uh, climbed. It's an ice climb of about 15, 1,500 feet high. Mm-hmm. And so it was just what I was looking for, an introduction to uh, <clears throat> alpine ice climbing. Did you find it was was it easy to adapt to um, this type of climbing? Or I mean, did you find it yeah. naturally? It- <laughs> yeah. Uh, for me, it was... Um, it, you know, I had read so much about it. I had actually, I think, uh, I had done snow climbing and steep snow climbing in the Tetons and elsewhere, but this was uh, pure alpine, hard alpine ice, and that was uh, I, I really enjoyed the the, um, the experience of it. I lo- loved the glaciers and uh, glacier travel, and it just, uh, uh, you know, the um, the mountains just seem more complete and much more interesting when they're covered with snow and ice and glaciers and mm-hmm. so on. They seem wilder and uh, more like the... Uh, storybook mountains in my head. You know? Right. Um, Were you guys, uh, did you guys snowshoe up or? Uh... No, in the summer you can, you tend to okay. just walk on the, on the glaciers up there. I mean, you might have some new snow, but <clears throat> generally speaking, you're not doing a lot of post holing or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so skis or snowshoes are, pretty extraneous um uh, but so we we did the north face of athabasca first and then we uh went to the alpine club of canada's uh headquarters in in uh, uh canmore got a shower researched uh, in there library came up with another climb to do which was um, the second ascent of the north face of um, Stanley I'm gonna say I I might be wrong I forget but it, it's you remember uh, who, who, who did the first ascent no <laughs> um, and it was a very moderate climb, but a longer climb than, than uh, Athabasca. And uh, once again, a lot of fun covering a lot of ground with uh, on pure ice. And so that was our second climb. Went back, got another shower, went, went up to... Uh, to um, the Columbia Ice Fields area again, which is where uh, uh, Athabasca is, and and climbed uh, or went in to try uh, <laughs> the north face of Mount Kitchener, which is pretty amazing because it hadn't that hadn't climb it was one of the biggest uh, 
and most uh, well-known of the unclimbed challenges up there. And here I was, a 19-year-old kid, uh, on his first week-long trip to the Canadian Rockies. I've had my two big uh, apprenticeship climbs, and now we're going off to do uh, one of the hardest climbs in the range that uh, people had been looking at for a couple of decades and, uh-huh. and not, not feeling adequate to approach. But I was with George and, uh-huh. you know, with, I was all for it. So we went in there and, and uh, bivouacked uh, below the face and, and um, uh, started up the next day. And um, there was just too much rock fall and so on. Mm-hmm. So we, we came down. Well, I was pretty disappointed because that's really what I was into is these big mixed rock and ice spaces. Mm-hmm. The moderate ice climbs were, were fun, but they didn't really, they they weren't what I was after. I was after the north face of the Eiger or north face of the Matterhorn or something equivalent to that. And so I was disappointed, but we quickly regrouped and went uh, back to the Lake Louise area and, and uh, made the first complete ascent of the north face of, uh, of um, uh, Mount Temple. And so, um, which was a really great experience and that was similar to what I'd been looking for um, and uh, we went up and bivouacked below the face at Lake Annette and Christy walked into Lake Annette with us bivouacked and then she w- walked over a pass to meet us on the, the way down we didn't get down that night we um, climbed I think for 18 hours or something and bivouacked on the summit and then came down the next day. And as I recall, Christy, who was this 17 or 18 year old girl, was just fine on her own after her, met us on the way down from the climb. And, and so she was quite adventurous in her own right, hanging out there with the grizzlies, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but the, the climb was really um, pretty moderate most of the way, and, uh, but it's, uh, it's 4,500 feet high. And so a lot of, lot of uh, fast movement on, on moderate rock and then a few harder pitches and then a big ice cliff at the top that took the, overhanging ice cliff that required a couple of hard pitches of ice climbing, mm-hmm. which one of them we aided on ice screws because this was just at the transition point 
in technique and technology of ice climbing. When, although we had um, the curved picks in our uh, ice axes with us, which would allow us, if we'd known and had the experience, it would have allowed us to uh, uh, free climb uh, the ice cliff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't know that at the time. It was too, they, the tools had just become available <clears throat> just that year, really, uh, which was 1970. And um, so we ended up doing one full pitch of aid, which is really slow yeah. on ice screws, you know. Uh, but it was a. I loved the overall experience. It was, and and we just laid on the the top of Mount Temple is covered with a little ice cap, mm-hmm. and uh, so we got over the ice uh, cliff, and it's a few hundred feet to the summit, and we just bivouacked just uh, uh, below the summit, uh, just laying down on her. Uh, insulite pads. And, but that was a cold day. Uh, it was it was fine. I used to love that stuff. You know, I mean, yeah, you shiver through the night, but right. um, a biv- bivouac to us meant without sleeping bags and with a, what people call bivouacs now are pretty plush. You know, <laughs> uh, we had a bivy sack which was really just an envelope, two layers of thin ripstop nylon, and that was it, you know, and in a little Svea stove and, uh, you know, a little pot and make up some tea and eat some Kendall mint, Kendall mint cake, which, have you ever had that stuff? No, I've heard of it, though. Oh, yeah, it's pure sugar <laughs> with a little mint in it. Um, English concoction uh-huh. and uh, we used to think that was the greatest source of energy um, I, it wasn't bad but it was <laughs> it, in today's standards it, it's not the right thing to be eating but because it's pure sugar right so anyway so that that uh, climb was uh, just a total turn on for me Uh, and let's see was it the same year no the year before George and I had done the South A wall on El Cap and we talked about that I know we've talked about Yosemite a little bit unless this was after uh, unless this was after your time when you, uh, when you lived in California. No, this was, anyway, uh, in terms of <laughs> climbs that were kind of pivotal uh, for me, doing the Salathe Wall on El Capitan with George uh, in the spring of 1969, mm-hmm was a total eye-opener for me. And then the next summer, going with George to Canada for this 
we had about a week up there. We did, you know, several good climbs and tried the north face of Mount Kitchener too, all in that week. And then we drove home. So mm-hmm. it was, it was a pretty full week, which is any trip with George was always that way. There was no, <laughs> no goofing off. No, 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 there, no rest days. We don't rest, we climb, Right. you know, so if you get off one climb in the early morning or something after bivouac, you might go and take a shower, but then you pack for the next one and walk into the base of it. So, so there's no, no, uh, no fiddling around. Um, Is that because George had a, a- Full-time yeah, well, he was a full-time student, graduate student at that right. point. Probably had some teaching uh, and research uh, obligations, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's how he's always run his life. Yeah, uh, he's not lazy like me. You know? <laughs> anyway, that trip and Mount Temple. Mm-hmm. The north face of Mount Temple, in particular, was, uh, you know, just showed me that my true love was the high mountains and and the whole shebang, the glaciers, the ice, the rock, the you know, <clears throat> un, unclimbed faces. You know, right. that was what really turned me on. Um, so then that fall, Chrissy and I uh, drove our uh, trailer full of what possessions we had over to um, Colorado to to Gunnison to start work for um, Colorado Outward Bound. And I think the first day we were there, we ran into... Um, uh, Mike Weiss up in, uh, we'd gone up to see uh, senior instructor uh, for Outward Bound up in Crested Butte. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to find his house and we asked directions from this guy on the street who, who was Mike Weiss, it turns out. And it turns out he was going over to see this guy himself. So he hopped in the car and showed us where he lived. And immediately we started climbing together, Mike and I, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> hit it off really well. He hadn't been climbing too long, but uh, I think only a couple of years. But the very first year that uh, he started climbing, he and a guy named John Wyland <clears throat> made uh, a winter ascent of... Uh, the Harding route on Keeler Needle in uh, in the Mount Whitney area of mm-hmm. the Sierras, and, um, <clears throat> which was a pretty significant climb for the time. So he was just, uh, he had grown up in a lumber camp in uh, Northern uh, California, and he was uh, just a really solid, competent guy all the way around. Uh, fun, no nonsense, very intelligent, very well read, uh, you know, so climbing with him wasn't just 
about the climbing. It was about the overall experience. And, good partnership. Yeah, good. So, um, so we started uh, uh, climbing together that year, and I'm trying to think. A lot happened in in about 1970. Mm -hmm. I started <clears throat> climbing in the uh, 69 and 70. I started doing good climbs in the Wind Rivers. Uh, started really opening up the big walls in Zion. Went to the Canadian Rockies. Uh, started climbing there. Uh, and um, yeah, so that, that was kind of a, all of a sudden I, oh, and I quit ski racing. Right. So, so I, when I was 19, I, I quit. Uh, and, and so I could devote full time to climbing and mm -hmm. outward bound for a few years, uh, you know, I w would work for a month or two months or three months for outward bound. And then on that money, I had enough money um, somehow to live for uh, three to six months and climb. Right. And, which is amazing because they didn't pay that much. But we were very frugal, mm -hmm. you know, lived on granola and soup. And yeah. that was, in fact, I remember... Uh, One summer, uh, got a few years later, probably 72 or 73, uh, an old ski racing buddy from Tahoe, Cactus Brian, who had become a climber, also, um, uh, I introduced him to climbing and Zion, did we talk about that already? No, I don't think we have. Oh, we have. I think you've mentioned his name in the past. Yeah. Anyway, one summer, we didn't have much money, but to save money, we bought huge bags of uh, oats. And, uh, we made a granola. I mean, like, we made 100 pounds of granola. <laughs> we bought uh, several cases of Top Ramen. Yeah. And some tuna fish, and a bunch of tea, and and some sugar, and powdered milk, and we we lived for the summer on that stuff, and went up to the Rockies and up to um, Pacific Northwest, climbed all summer eating that, but we did keep enough money for beer too. Of course, yeah. So that was our summer diet. <clears throat> Uh, when I think about it, is we were really dedicated to climbing. Right. Yeah. Do you want to talk um, in more detail about the Wind Rivers or uh, Zion? Yeah, or yeah, I I do because they're in and even you know climbs in the early seventies were busy, mm -hmm. really busy. Um, I mean, in no particular order, you know, the 
really good climbs uh, in the wind, wind rivers. My first good climb, and I, well, my first climb in the wind rivers, and I'm not sure how we ever chose this route, was uh, a climb we called Surprise Wall on Mount Temple, another Mount Temple in the Wind Rivers mm -hmm. on the north side. But the Surprise Wall, the north side of Mount Temple in the Wind Rivers is like three pyramids with a center pyramid going to the peak and then a lower left pyramid and a lower right pyramid kind of buttressing mm -hmm. an upper pyramid. And the... <coughs> <coughs> The lower left pyramid is about a 1,500-foot uh, wall that's the, the nicest wall of the three, mm -hmm. even though it doesn't go to the summit. And somehow, Eric Eliasson and I, Eric was a climber from um, Salt Lake who was either my age or a year younger, mm -hmm. uh, but we had, we had somehow focused on this, never having been into the winds uh, before. And, um, or may, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that was the second. No, I think that was my first climb in the winds with Eric. Okay. So uh, Eric and I had started climbing together, and actually he had been one of my partners on my first trip to... Uh, Yosemite, mm -hmm. and we'd done a couple of climbs there, and uh, gotten along quite well, and and uh, so we drove to the winds. Oh, uh, no! That spring we had done our first big wall together, and it was a small big wall in Capitol Reef uh, along the main main road through Capitol Reef, and we called it, uh, I think, Time Warp or something. Mm -hmm. We called the climb, and it's about eight, 800 feet high, and we uh, uh, bivouacked once on it, uh, I think about five pitches up, and finished it the next day, and it was a, uh, a new route, and... Um, uh, Eric, so Eric and I had our wall systems down pretty well uh, mm -hmm. together already, and because I was probably 18 and he was probably 17 at that point, I right. think. So pretty young, but we were still organized for that kind of climbing, and um, I think I'm gonna have. Hey. All right, we're back on. Go ahead. So, uh, beginning uh, after in in nineteen uh, spring of nineteen seventy, when I quit ski racing um, <clears throat> and started climbing full time, I I started uh, uh, a circuit for the next three years. Kind of each year it would be something like starting off with a wall in uh, in Yosemite, usually an El Cap route, um, 
and um, then probably to Zion for some climbs there. Did um, uh, um, a bunch of good climbs in Zion, uh, the east and north face of uh, faces of um, Angels Landing, and then. Big root called the toad, mm -hmm. and uh, um, <clears throat> a climb called Jacob. Uh, Were these with uh, mostly the same climbing partner? Or was well, it, was this just whoever would come yeah, along with you? Uh, well, the the east face of uh, the first route I did in Zion was was with Bruce Rogar. Mm -hmm. East face of Angel's Landing. And then Cactus Brian was down there at that time. He hadn't climbed much before, but I taught him how to Jumar and we did the um, the north face of Angel's Landing. And then um, uh, the toad I did with Cactus the next spring, which was... Uh, after doing the fourth ascent of the North America Wall on El Cap with a guy named Don Peterson. Um, and, um, you know, it was interesting because already back then I felt the main um, challenges of Yosemite had already been done. Mm -hmm. So the best you could do would be kind of repeating um, some of the uh, best routes, you know, like the North America wall, which at the time was considered the hardest wall climb in the world, um, which was uh, 1970, we did it. it. It had been first climbed in 64. And anyway, so the discovering Zion was like, you know, where nothing had been climbed. Hardly. Right. It was, uh, was uh, the perfect place for me and my, uh, my friends and I who really wanted the adventure of uh, really finding a wall and and choosing the best route right off the bat and, and doing it that way. And so Zion was perfect for that. Um, and so uh, Cactus Brian was a partner there, um, uh, a climb that has since been become a, a classic trade route down there is uh, Moonlight Buttress, which I did with Mike Weiss. Um, um, <coughs> what are the other? Mike Weiss and I did the West Face of the Watchmen together. A guy named Wick Beavers and Mike Weiss and uh, John Wyland and I did uh, 
the southeast buttress of Jacob together. Um, so those were the climbing partners in the early 70s in, in Zion. Um, and then, as I said, in the Wind Rivers, it was uh, um, Eric Eliason mm -hmm. on Surprise Wall on Mount, Mount Temple. And then uh, um, Jeff Heath, who was, like me, an outdoor program instructor, but he was uh, an instructor for uh, Paul Petzold's uh, school called Knowles, National Outdoor Leadership uh, School out of Lander, Wyoming. And so they they were very familiar with the Wind Rivers. And one of the best early climbs I did in the Wind, ri wind Rivers was with Jeff on the north Tower of Haystack of the, above Deep deep Lake. Mm -hmm. And on that route, there was aid climbing that was more difficult than anything on the North, North America wall. And we also did free climbing that was, uh, uh, I think we did that climb in 69 or 70, but uh, it had, it was years before it had a second ascent, decades actually. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the early 2000s. Oh, but wow. the guys who repeated it said the free climb was up to 511. So, um, which was, you know, for that era, a high standard of free climb. And then, uh, so, and then I did a good route in um, in the Cirque of the Towers with George on uh, um, on Warrior One, um, the north face of Warrior One. So, um, and and then each summer after. Starting off in the valley, then maybe going to Zion, and then maybe to the winds, mm -hmm. or maybe we'd go up to Canada first, and then the winds. But and often on the way to Canada, we might stop off in um, <coughs> in um, you know. Uh, the North Cascades or the mm -hmm. High Sierra in California. How are you guys getting around at this time? Oh, driving old clunkers, <laughs> you know, cheap old clunkers and fixing them on the way. Um, you know, I, although I did get a, I shouldn't say that because in about 1970, I had made some good business decisions and made a little bit of money and I bought a brand new Datsun pickup for uh, about $2,200, I think. And how does one make good business decisions in, the, in working out for <laughs> outreach programs? Well, I, I had a little, um, uh, uh, wholesale water bed company. Mm 
okay. that I started. And my dad uh, let me run it through his, uh, he had a uh, wholesale uh, company set up called Wayne Supply mm -hmm. for building. He set that up to buy materials for building a motel down near Capitol Reef. I think we talked about yeah, that. Yeah, we had talked yeah. about it. And, and so he let me buy waterbeds through at wholesale through that. And I ended up making some money uh, one year by, I forget, I sold waterbeds to um, a couple of motels and, you know, waterbeds were, were it. right back then. So I made a little money and got some cash and bought this pickup, brand new. To, I think I put a, a, a little topper on the back and I think that cost 200 bucks. So, and then I put a hundred bucks into some materials and I, uh, I built out the back. So I had a, a camper in the back. Right. So that was that was good. So at that point, I had a good vehicle, you know. Um, so that that was seventy probably or uh -huh. seventy one by that time. Um, so I can't say that I They're had clunkers. That <laughs> up to that time they had been real clunkers. So, um, anyway, I was talking about the circuit. Yep. And I would say that this circuit went on in a pretty organized fashion for 70, 71, 72, 73. And then it got a little uh, dispersed because I started doing trips overseas and stuff. But uh -huh. those three years were pretty tight to this. Uh, type type of approach and um, anyway climbs that I did during that those years uh, that were good uh, with various people were uh, Rob Kiesel an old, another old ski racing buddy and I and a fellow from Ogden here who had started climbing Rob and I did a good route on uh, Mount Slessy in the North Cascades called the North Rib. Um, a nice 27 pitch free climb. And um, uh, uh, my brother Greg and I did a good route on Elephant's Perch in the sawtooth uh, that's called the fine line now. Uh, it's become something of a classic. Then in 1971, uh, um, Gray Thompson, Chris Jones, and I climbed the ramp route on Mount Kitchener, which was not the route that George and I had been headed to the the year before, which was a central uh, cool line 
the ramp route was a little less obvious, but it was probably a little little bit safer. And so Chris and Gray and I did that. And uh, we spent two days on the climb. And it was, you know, we were thinking we were trying to find climbs the equivalent of like the north face of the Matterhorn or something. But the, these climbs we were doing in the Rockies were actually more difficult than <laughs> the Alpine counterparts. Um, so it was great. We had this whole range with these great walls uh, with very few of them having had been climbed at that point. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, a neat thing. And um, so there was, we were able to kind of live out our own pioneering era mm -hmm. in the Canadian Rockies, which would be equivalent to the pioneering era in the 1930s in the Alps. Right. Of the big faces in the Alps. And uh, uh, so we did the ramp route in 71. And then um, Mike Weiss and I did uh, the north face of Epaulette in probably 72 or so. And and uh, um, <clears throat> during this period, on these rounds that we would make on this circuit, good climbs that we did, including winter climbs, where George and I did the Black Eyes Couloir West Face of the Grand Teton Combination in winter. Um, uh, Mike Weiss and I did the uh, Grand Central Couloir on Mount Kitchener uh, uh, several years after um, the ramp route or a couple years after doing the ramp route. This has also become a big classic up there. Um, but he's, I mean, was everything getting more and more difficult? I mean, were you, did you notice that you were progressing um, as far as skill level goes? Well, what's interesting is no, uh, they weren't getting that much more difficult. We were just doing the most difficult we, things we could find right off the bat. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's funny, uh, after having climbed a lot in the 60s and developing the skills, the skill level got up to a pretty high level by the time I was 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And it was adequate to dealing with uh, state-of-the-art climbs at that time. Right. And these are still hard climbs today. So, it, and and we wouldn't go into an era an area and slowly build up to the hard climbs of the area. We just zero in on the best routes right. we could find, which is really, um, um, when I look back, it, it, it seems audacious, you know, to take that approach. And probably not something that, you know, I would recommend to people to do, but we had 
all the confidence in the world. Mm. And uh, who knows why? Um, <laughs> partly it was because of George's attitude, you know, um, had rubbed off on me. Right. There were there were no limits to what we could try, kind of. Huh. Um, I remember first starting up El Cap with him. I was nervous on my first El Cap route um, at 18, uh, doing the South a Wall with George. The, I think we did the Seventh Ascent. And George just said, well, you know, just calm down. A couple <laughs> days, you'll be fine. And it was right. And after that, I just never, never questioned the ability to take on any anything that we could come up with, right. any, any anything that was presented, and I think that was largely George's influence on me. As I said, he was uh, one of my great mentors. Another one was Greg uh, on the free climbing side. Right. Um, Go ahead and continue that. Um, I also did uh, some really good solos during this era, um, both on rock and ice. I, I did um, uh, a new route on the north face of the Grand called Simpleton's Pillar mm -hmm. in 1972 uh, or about. And that was, uh, I, I, I called it 5.9. I'm pretty sure it's 5.10. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it's had a second ascent yet. I know people have tried to find it. Um, it's not hidden. <laughs> But uh, I, I think they might be looking for something that's a little easier than it actually is. Uh, is there was one pitch that was quite hard on it. And um, so that was a good climb. Uh, I did um, uh, a, not a really hard climb, but an adventurous climb on the north face of Swiss Peak in uh, in the interior interior ranges of Canada, which was uh, interesting because the the whole valley that I walked up to get to it was kind of unexplored, and I don't don't remember how I found out about this space, but I went in kind of sight unseen, uh -huh. uh, nice. Uh, 3,000 foot ice face and um, and just went and hiked in one day along the railroad tracks and then up this side valley to the north face of Swiss Peak, climbed the north face and then descended down the south side and down a glacier on the south side uh, down to the highway which goes over um, I forget the name of the pass on Trans-Canada Highway, where Christy, my girlfriend, met me with the car. But these are pretty audacious little um, 
jaunts, you know, mm-hmm. uh, through terrain I'd never even seen before, and and um, you know, really fast too. Right. When you think about the timing on uh, that stuff, and I was I I must have been just totally confident. I I don't remember thinking of it as anything. <clears throat> special it was driven just by a love of exploration and not uh, a desire to be um, you know to make a name for myself or anything in fact I don't think I ever reported this climb on Swiss Peak Mm -hmm. it was just uh, uh, something that I wanted to see what was up that valley and you know and, and because I'd heard some, read somewhere in some old book about this valley of good faces, you know, mm-hmm. and so that was enough to spark my interest. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, I had brought my ice axe and crampons and saw that in fact there was a good route to do, and just did it right on the spot. And then descended down a, a, a completely other side of the mountain, with no knowledge of it, and just um, it's a real adventurous approach. And I think that's what this kind of climbing really appealed to me for. It was the total adventure of it, you know. Uh-huh. Um, oh, there were lots of Other climbs not as important during this period to um, in Colorado, um, and I had started climbing in in um, well this this whole period wrapped up. I, I was doing both uh, climbs of all sorts. Um, I was doing ice climbing, free climbs and big wall climbs, mixed free and aid. And, but I I had, by about 73, although the ice climbs and the the big faces, icy and rocky faces in, in the Canadian Rockies or elsewhere, still attracted me. I was losing interest in the big wall climbs because using aid and all the equipment that was even available back then, uh-huh. I started to get the feeling that I could go to the base of any piece of rock and end up on the top with a good partner, you know? Right. And that loses some of its appeal to me when I don't know that there's a chance of failure. Um, so two things, uh, we'd, uh, I had always limited to an absolute minimum, the use of, uh, bolts, which allow you to go anywhere. Right. Uh, but even with that, um, it just started to seem not, I just started to lose interest in, in the big wall uh mixed free and aid style 
of climbing. But what started to replace that was the idea of <clears throat> complete free ascents of big walls. Right. Now, and so I, <coughs> I became... <coughs> more intrigued with that. And one of the last mixed free and aid climbs that I did uh, was in 1973 in September uh, when John Wyland and I made a new route on the east face of Mount Whitney. No, a Keeler Needle near, near Mount Whitney. And... Um, And, you know, when I got to the top of that, it was a very good route and uh, <clears throat> excellent climbing. But I, I just decided that I was going to just try to free climb mm -hmm. waltz from there on out. And, not, uh, and if I couldn't free climb them, I wouldn't do them. So that was kind of a transition for me mm -hmm. and the next summer in the winds um, was the first time I really took that approach on the, on the uh, west pillar of square top with my brother Greg and um, Ken Christensen mm -hmm. who we used to call hack from Ogden here right and um, and we did that climb and I did use one uh, one point of aid on the climb because it was the main crack was uh, running with water. It was a waterfall right there at that point, so I got around that. And it's since been easily free climbed and uh, up the main corner when when it's dry. Right. But everything else we did uh, free, and so since that time I. I never really went back to the uh, um, mixed free and aid style, uh, and and so I think we could leave leave it there as a transition point. Okay. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please keep in mind that the views and opinions expressed in this interview are solely those of the oral history participants and do not reflect any views, opinions, or official policy at the University of Utah or the J. Willard Marriott Library. For more information about this podcast, check out the ascentarchive.lib.utah.edu. That's A-S-C-E-N-T-A-R-C-H-I-V-E dot L-I-B dot Utah dot E-D-U. The Ascent Archive podcast team includes librarians Tally Casucci and myself, Rachel Whitman. Special thanks to Leah Donaldson for graphic and website design, Brian Elias Hole for music, and thanks to the University of Utah Special Collections and the American West Center. And lastly, the rock climbing community for participating in these interviews and listening. Mm -hmm.